going to be late. Of, and I, I've got two medical guys. I, I, was gonna, I had a joke. How's your Latin? How good is your Latin? No? Okay, how about you? Well, mine's terrible. Mine's terrible. But there's... I speak yeah. any language except Greek. Except Greek. So there's two terms in Latin that are foundation of our faith. The first one is the Imago Dei, which we all know, right? We all know. That's the image of God. It's the, it's the divine imprint that is on every single human being that walks this earth. Whether they believe in him or not is the Imago Dei. The second one is the Uneo Mystica, which is, you know, it's the mystical union between God and his jewel of creation. These are two foundational thoughts as we look to evangelize and affect the culture in our world. Um, now I lost my place. The theme of our discussion today, as I attempt to walk to as I, trying to yield to the Holy Spirit as I attempt to walk in the true meaning of the uneo mystica and the beauty of the Imago Dei, um, in my dealing, first of all, with my own sin, and then second of all, with people that are around me. In the current cultural climate, the theme of our discussion will be centered on those two theological concepts, the uneo mystica and the Imago Dei, and how they should steer us in living out our faith. Uh, my hope is in our short time together, we'll see through a lens of a few passages from the book of James that we have been given incredible gifts. First, we have foresight into how all of this is going to come to an end. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And the second one is, is that we have been given the power to live with joy and humor and gladness, and in love, and in victory, in spite of what is going on around us. Circumstances do not matter in the Christ-called life. Only our obedience does. Some of us uh, are going to be probably a little bit uncomfortable with what we're going to talk about today. And frankly, I think that's okay. And if you're offended, I'll apologize now. Uh, feel free to disagree with me, both silently Right here, we can talk about it, or later in private. There is a very good possibility that I could be mistaken, and uh, I would welcome the correction. I believe that this is all part of working out our faith in fear and trembling, when we can have these open discussions and talk about it. Um, I believe that doing that in community. Today, I'm going to share some things that God has been dealing with me on. And that's generally what I do, especially when I'm given this amount of time, when the Lord is convicting of me or pressing on me and telling me I need to make these changes. I don't like to suffer alone, so I like to bring people along with me. Um, I believe that it's all part of our working out our faith. As I said, I'm going to share things that he's been dealing with me and hoping we can begin this discussion on how we can walk our faith in joy and effective witness. Because ultimately, at the end of the day, I believe that's our ultimate calling, is to live out an effective witness. Um, this is an interactive class, and so when I ask questions, they're not rhetorical. <laughs> I, I have an expectation of people to engage. Um, so in the last several years, I've really been wrestling with the concept that we as believers are presently living in a post-Christian era. The days of claiming that America is a Christian nation are behind us, right? So it is time for us to look at that fact and figure out a way to interact with our culture. Um, this includes the content we consume and interact, both face-to-face -face and, of course, the wonderful machine called the metaverse, social media, right? Even that name's changed now, hasn't it? Um, I believe we are now starting our journey back into exile from the time that Constantine made Christianity legal. We are heading back into exile. I believe that with all my heart. All we have to do is look around us, and we need to be prepared for that. Yeah. Um, this is scary. It's scary because we've never experienced it before. Not in Western, not in Western culture. But it's also quite exhilarating. 
Why is it exhilarating? Closer to the Lord's coming. Closer to the Lord's coming, but, it, but the church has always thrived and spread under persecution. Right? I mean, look at the underground church in China. There are hundreds of thousands of silent Christians. It had to go back underground again about six years ago. They came above ground, and then the persecution got it. They started driving bulldozers through churches and knocking crosses down and stuff, so the church went back underground, and much to the disdain of the Chinese government, the church exploded again. It leveled off and got, the church leveled off and kind of got a little complacent, but when it was forced back underground, guess what happened? Um, I think that in order for us to thrive, there's a couple of things that I need to change in my thinking. Um, I believe that in far too many ways, either consciously or subconsciously, I've turned this beautiful and mystical Eastern faith of the Unaomistica and the staggering miracle that I'm united to my creator of the universe who spoke everything into being, who through his divine will called me into relationship with him, through the finished work on the cross, into some kind of utilitarian and moralistic code. And when I say utilitarian, I mean that uh, God's use, that I use God too often as a tool to be useful when convenient and treating our relationship with him as a commodity to be exchanged or a transactional relationship, for lack of a better term. Kind of the old school, if I do, if I do this, God will do that, right? Um, too quickly, I'm too quick to form my opinions and shape my narrative. I put aside my love for others because of their opinions. I think of one example is the old cliche that I've used thousands of times, both in my mind and in my approach to culture. Hate the sin, love the sinner. Now I find it quite repugnant. It's something that we've used over and over. I think everybody in this room at some point has had that either that mindset or used it. And the reason why I say that is, although I get the premise, right, I just don't see it as a helpful approach into engaging a lost and broken world. Um, I'm trying my best to love the sinner and hate my sin. Hate my sin and engage people where they are and live a life of personal repentance. By moralistic, I mean having the expectation of others to have identical morals and values as I do. I want to qualify this statement because please understand I do believe in absolute biblical moral truth. But it is a fool's errand when we expect an unbeliever to hold to those truths without the power of divine revelation. Heck, we can barely do it. And the Holy Spirit's constantly on our shoulder, isn't he? Pecking us, telling us, that still small voice, really? Really, Parnum? Really? Really? Um, and secondly, it's incredibly divisive to expect our fellow believers to align with us on every single issue. There are things that we hold with a closed hand, we know. But we need to get better at holding things with an open hand if we're going to be the kind of church that Christ has called us to. Um, and we have to be extremely cautious when we say or think, you can't be a Christian and fill in the blank. I know that there are a lot of things that John and I, John and I have talked about this stuff for years, but those thoughts set our eyes on the external of people rather than the internal, which is their imago day, And that should be our multiple concern. I am really sure that it was no coincidence that Jesus announced his public ministry to a woman of loose morals in a hostile land. Why is that such a great analogy now? We are surrounded by... It's been polarized, you know, because of the culture and social media, etc. And we turn our back on people that are, are different or lost or hurting, but, you know, uh, but are different than us. Mm -hmm. yeah. Jesus announced his public ministry to an adulteress in Samaria. That's, 
Yeah. I believe that the book of James is a great lens for us to view our response to our place in church history. Guys, we have a place in church history. And I think far, far too often we have a tendency to go through our lives and not realize that we have an important role to play, much like the evangelists did as they shared the gospel from Judea and to the ends of the earth, even to Illyricum. Right? That's an exciting thing for us. We have to remember that we have to be equipped and we have to use God's eyes. Um, it's full of prescriptive language. You know, in the Bible, there's two kinds of language. There's descriptive language, right? Meaning, hey, this is what happened. I'm not telling you to do it, but this is what happened. And then there's prescriptive language, which means, hey, do this. And I think it really gives us detailed direction in how we're supposed to engage our culture. It's an interesting sidebar that James's letter, I don't call it epistle, an epistle, I call it a diatribe. <laughs> it is an epistle letter, but it precedes all of the Pauline epistles. The James's book was circulated among the church before any of Paul's books were, and yet there's no contradiction in the message, even though Martin Luther would disagree. Martin Luther hated the book of James. Just a little sidebar, because of most, most, yeah, mostly, mostly because of he who does not, who, he who does not do the things he, when he sees the good that he should do and does not do it, sins. Uh, because Martin Luther had been coming up against the legalism, of course, of the Catholic Church. So let's go ahead and open our text. Our text is James chapter 1. We'll probably read through verse 8. We're going to spend most of our time, I'm going to have plenty of time. I'm glad I overprepared. Um, Uh, verses, uh, let's go one through eight, and we'll see how far we go. Uh, this is part of a lesson that I, a lesson series that I had taught 13, 14 years ago when I taught the book of James line by line. It only took me about 10 and a half months to get through it. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, yeah, no, no, hardly. I am not near the scholar. So um, my style of teaching is life application. I am not a scholar. I read the scriptures. I read the commentaries. I see how scriptures have affected people throughout church history and then try to apply that to my life and then share that with the people that will listen to me. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you, want, if any of you lack, lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person not, must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Probably anybody who's been in the church for any period of time has heard this text. I'm not even going to try and put a good spin on it. So my first question is, Really? We have to walk in the fire in order to have a pure and solid faith. Why do you suppose this is so? Why do you suppose God ordained it this way? Wouldn't it just be easier if we got everything we wanted? Why do you believe that trials are ordained by God? Anybody who's a prosperity believer here, this is going to really just kind of blow. Nobody here is a prosperity person. But what? They strengthen your faith, okay? They humble you. They humble you. you learn how to trust it when you go through trials. Okay. Forces you to turn to God. Forces you to turn to God. It's certainly easier, I don't know about easier, but um, more intimate with God in lamentation. Even though I enjoy rejoicing and it's wonderful, um, 
I've walked through, sometimes I feel like more than my share of trials in my life. Um, but now as I look back on them, I, oh, there's one, I, I'll, when our grandson passed away, I'll probably never get over that one. But um, definitely spent a lot of time lamenting and I felt very, very close to God. God didn't promise me that he was going to heal Noah. He promised me that he was going to walk me through it. And I would not change that for the world. In our culture, our temptation is to move on from suffering very quickly, isn't it? Right? Pick, I mean, pick the cliche, right? Move on. You know, and one of the things that we've learned in our journey is, is you never move on from real suffering. You carry on. Right. Let's go ahead and take a look at Matthew 5.12. Somebody could get that. And then 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9 and John 16, 32 and 33. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Matthew 5, 12 through what? Uh, just Matthew 5, 12. Want to read it? Yeah, please. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so the persecuted the prophets who were before you. Yeah. Isn't it surprising, or maybe not surprising, how shocked American evangelical, I can never say the word, evangelicalism is outraged by the attack from the left? Is this a, should we be surprised? Should we be angry? But yet, you know, I, I just think we honestly, because we live in such wealth and opulence and comfort, and we've never seen it in our generation or previous generations, and it's calmed down quite a bit, but I mean, gosh, you guys remember the, the, um, the outrage over the Starbucks crust, uh, cups and the war on Christmas? Why are we surprised? What did Jesus say? Hey, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Hated me first. Right. Uh, I've heard a funny thing, a sidebar. Um, anybody, everybody know who Michael Medved is? He's a, he's a Jewish man. And um, he was, uh, I heard him on a podcast with this Christian interviewer. And he goes, so, Michael, you know, you're, you're a cultural commentator and all this stuff. He said, what happened to the war on Christmas? He goes, oh. Christmas one. People like Christmas. You know, there was that brief period of attack. Nobody's correcting me to say happy holidays anymore, are they? Yeah, Christmas one. People like Christmas. You know, it's, it's, it's just... I mean, it's still only have secular music playing. You don't hear much Jesus music no. at Christmas time anymore. So that kind of... Yeah. That it's all instrumental. If it says anything about Jesus, it's instrumental. Well, that's the other thing. It's totally not my notes. But guys, Jesus is offensive. The gospel is offensive. Why is it offensive? Because you have to sit down and tell somebody you love or a perfect stranger that you are hopelessly lost and there is absolutely nothing you can do about it. But it's the truth. The gospel is offensive. And then we can go and take them down the Roman road that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? And we can take them down that road. It's, it's an offensive concept. Heck, it, I, I've been a Christian since 1985, the fall of 1985. It's still offensive to me. Jesus offends me regularly with the stuff he wants me to do. It's like, really? Nobody else does that. Are you sure offensive is the right word? I think I get your concept, but offensive may seem like too strong of a word. Well, I it challenges me. Well, it offends my flesh, because yeah, I mean, I yeah, I guess offensive, you know, from a I guess from a seasoned Christian, maybe not, but 
to the world and to young men that I've discipled over the years, it is offensive. You know, when I tell a guy, I don't care if your wife nags you. You need to lay your life down for her. To a non-believer, I agree with you. It's yeah. offensive. But to a mature Christian, and I'm assuming you are, I, I get what you're trying to say. I get right. the concept. Right. Well, yeah, because... It's challenging to me. Yeah. It's sometimes distressing. Sometimes I feel like a failure. Yeah. It just suits my, I guess it's... It just suits my style more to use the word offensive. You know, that's kind of kind of my heart. But yeah, I think that all makes sense because, you know, in Romans it says it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance, right? And it is God's kindness when he says, hey, hey, we got to talk about this. We got, we got to work through this and help you move out of that. Okay, who's got 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9? There's a key word in that verse that I think is really cool. Blessed be God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, through, through, it, tested for fi through it tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen whom having not seen, you love, though now, though, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving at the end of your faith the salvation of your souls. The, at the end, end of your faith. The uh, uh, English Standard Version, which is the version I use, uh, mostly just because I know it irritates Ben, um, <laughs> Because, guys, I know that the ESV has a slant towards Reformed theology. I'm aware. It's not completely unbiased. But um, they use the word the outcome of your faith. That the suffering, the trials, the imperishable nature, it is the outcome of our faith. Um, we're expected to move on too quickly. Far too, far too often we look at sorrow and brokenness as some kind of spiritual deficiency. Why can't you just get over it? Am I the only one that's ever been guilty of that? Um, is it biblical? Is it biblical to expect our own suffering or the suffering of the people we know to pass quickly so that we can have the normal person back? Is that a biblical mindset? There's an entire book in the Old Testament called what? Lamentations. <laughs> now, this is not to say that we're allowed to be non-functional because we are taught in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, I do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. So we are never have the permission as believers to lose hope. But I believe we have permission to doubt and to rage and to weep and to feel that brokenness. I, I was reading a very interesting article and then I heard it on a podcast from a different person that trials and suffering, suffering in particular, are only... One is one of only two trans transformational forces in the human experience. Uh, nobody comes out of suffering as the same person. It's verified in nearly every psychological test, both secular and Christian. That if you come through a period of suffering and then have this expectation that you're going to go back to being the same person you were, Frustration, depression, sometimes even mental illness come out on the other side of it. Addiction, I mean, name it. 
Um, when we experience grief and sorrow for as long as it takes to really receive from the Lord what he wants to give us in that season. Right? The balance, it, the balance in lament, I believe, is community. That when we can lament with our brothers and sisters and have true lamentation. Um, I know that when we lost Noah, there were a lot of really good intentioned people who said some really stupid things. We didn't care that Noah was with Jesus. That first six months to a year, we cared that Noah wasn't here anymore. We know all the biblical truths. The one person who made a huge impact on me, and he'd be embarrassed if I mentioned his name, but I'm going into anyway, his name's Kevin Chanel. Uh, two days after Noah passed, he came out and sat on my patio with me and maybe said three words. Maybe. And I shared the journey with him. And then when it was time to leave, he hugged me and kissed me on the cheek and he left. It was truly balm to my wounds because he was lamenting with me. Um, but I... Uh, from what I see in the lives of the saints of Scripture and lamentation, that lamentation is among the purest forms of worship. And I believe lamenting with somebody we love is a very close sentence. Second, it creates a human bond that is truly beyond description. There are only two, like I said, nobody comes out of suffering. The second transformative force is love. Loving, being loved so unconditionally so recklessly that you transform your life for it. For me, that's two things. That's Jesus and that wonderful lady over there. And then loving something so much you're willing to change for it. I think far too often that we rush through trials and suffering and then we miss what the Lord really has for us in it. Karina Allen is... Uh, a Christian commentator, podcaster, blogger, and she went through a period of significant loss, uh, miscarriage, loss for parents, loss for career, just huge. And she, she wrote a really great blog on it. But the way she closed it, she says, lament has become a gift for me. It's not the one that I would have chosen, but it is definitely the one that has become invaluable to me. Because through her lament and through her sadness, she really got to see God. I don't wish it on anybody, and I don't have this in my notes, and, but it's something that um, I think we're far too often to do is we compare our sadness, trials, and lament to others and say, I have no right to complain because mine is not as bad as John's or as bad as Doc's, or as bad as Deb's. That is not at all the case. Your experience is your experience. It's the experience that God has given you and where he's placed you. And how you respond to that is between you and God, and of course your partner, and then of course your brothers and sisters in Christ, right? But that comparative notion of, well, I didn't lose my grandchild, so mine is nothing, and then you miss out on what God's trying to teach you in that trial. That comparative thing never works. I don't think it's ever healthy. Um, I think that um, I ha <laughs> one of my Kirkisms are, is we are all the sums of our own experiences. Right? That's who we are. And I know that I'm guilty of that quite often when I see somebody, they're experiencing something that I see as no big deal, but it's crushing them. I need to be more intuitive to that. See, I think you, you, you see the purpose in suffering now. I mean, right. oh, yeah. more clearly you see it now. Yep. And I think that's where we can miss is where we don't see the purpose in yep. suffering. I mean, David said in Psalm 119.71, he said, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. So it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn more about the Lord. You know, and so there's a purpose to it. 
got that there? Yeah. All right. Yeah. And, and, and Isaiah says, you know, the Lord says, I've, uh, I've not, I refined you not as silver or gold, but in the furnace of affliction. Right. And that, so we're being refined. We're learning more. Um, there is a purpose to it. But when you're in the midst of it, you need brothers and sisters to tell you that. Yeah. Like what you're talking about. You're going through Noah. Yeah. You need, you need Christian fellowship to get your perspective mm -hmm. over time. And, and, and a week together. Yeah. And as we engage culture, going back to kind of our original thought, is understanding that all of the stuff that we're seeing going on, the riots, the foolish political decisions and everything that are being made, these are not, people are not making these decisions and doing things out of their wholeness. They're broken, and this is how they're expressing it. Right? In Colossians 2.8, it says, See to it that nobody takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophies based on human tradition rather than, the, rather than the truth found in Christ. The world is telling these people that they're victims and they need to fight back, which is a lie because they won the lottery when they were born in America. You've been to third world nations. I've been to third world nations. You've been to third world nations. Nobody's a victim in America unless they've been victimized by somebody else. The one warning that I have to give before we move on, and I learned this from a brilliant theologian that I had a chance to sit under while we were going to church in Bellevue, is that if we do not transform our pain and allow God to transform it into the beauty that he wants it to, we more than likely will transmit it. that we have to allow God to transform our pain and to refine us as the gold that we were talking about and make sure that we don't transmit it because that is very dangerous. And we know scientifically and psychologically that's the case with child molesters, people who have been incarcerated, all that stuff that was it 90 plus percent of pedophiles were victims of pedophilia. Their pain was not transformed, it was transmitted. And I'm not talking in that extreme for us, but I do know in my case that if um, I can think of a lot of contentious things that have happened in my relationship with my wife and with my children was pains from my childhood that didn't, was, hadn't been transformed. So I was transmitting it. So just something to be careful of. It's funny you say that, and immediately I have people pop to my mind, you know, that do that. Yeah. I wonder if other people heard that statement. Some people just popped to their mind. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah, his name is uh, Justin Anderson. He was our, uh, <laughs> it was a big church, so we had, a, uh, we had the blessing of having a pastor of theology and discipleship. <laughs> it was a luxury. <laughs> hey, Justin, send him an email. Can you help me sort this out? It was a huge blessing. And I think what was our last one, our last, um, what was our last scripture verse there, that last cross-reference that I, huh? First Peter 1. Yeah, that was that one. I see I already turned the page. Uh, John 16, 32 and 33. I think we talked about pain enough, haven't we? <laughs> You can tell it's still pretty near and dear to me. Say it again, where's the verse? Uh, John uh, 16, 32 and 33. Yeah, you got it, yeah. It's, I can quote it. Basically, Jesus tells his disciples, hey, take heart. In this world, you're going to have trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. And I remember a sermon from Pastor Ben. If we truly have our eyes on heaven, why are we all living in a competition to see who can live the longest? Yeah. <laughs> that's kind of a classic Ben line. But that's a big promise, though. In this yeah. world, you will have trouble. I mean, so, and, and Peter said, well, why are you surprised at the painful trial you're suffering? As if something strange has happened yeah. to you. You know, and it, is, it does come as a shock and a surprise. No, I'm not saying that, but there, it's... There is a promise there that we will have trouble. And so have trouble. Well, in 1 Peter, it says any man who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. What does the Bible also say about his yoke? 
Yeah. It's light. It's light. That doing these things and living in the truth, although it is anathema to our flesh, it is a light burden. Which is one we could probably unpack for a lifetime, huh? God allows us to have these tribulations, trials, and troubles so we can bring our limitations to Him and then use these experiences to minister. That's a good word. A healed healer. A healed healer, right? You've been healed and ushered through this so that you can come along somebody else and help them walk through their lamentation and through their faith. I still believe with all my heart that the greatest gift that God has given us on this earth outside of our salvation is one another. As much as people irritate me. <laughs> Just being honest. I think people that don't believe that there's trials and tribulations look at my burden is light, my yoke is light. Yeah. You know, what they don't realize is that as Dama, my daughter who lost a uh, three-day-old son, mm -hmm. She said, I don't know how people who don't know Christ get through this. And to her, the only thing that got through her suffering was the fact of knowing Christ, and that lightened her burden. Mm -hmm. um, our son-in-law, after losing Noah, had his period of grief, and then he's using what he learned in Noah's journey to serve the community. Everywhere you look, you see Kyle doing something somewhere for somebody. You don't have to look very far. Of course, he's, um, as the Lord allows, he's going to have another child here pretty soon, uh, due in April. We'd appreciate your prayers for that. But, um, so there's a lot of anxiety that go along with this. So, but, um, yeah. So let's talk about wisdom. Verses 5 through 8 are actually just extensions of uh, verses 2 through 4. And it says... Um, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask. Who gives generously to all without reproach? And it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. If any of you lacks wisdom... Is that a qualitative or quantitative state, statement? Is he saying that there are actually some people in the church in Jerusalem at that time that didn't lack wisdom? Everybody. That's a qualitative statement, right? He's saying he was being nice. Instead of going, hey, you're all dumb, you all need wisdom, right? No, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generally to all. So what is the definition of biblical wisdom? I we believe it's seeing and responding to life situations from God's frame of reference. That's my memory. For that was prepared. That was prepared. <laughs> <laughs> seeing yeah. and responding to life situations through God's frame of reference. Right. That's sort of my personal definition. Right. I mean, we could literally spend the rest of our lives trying to unpack what godly wisdom really is and what it really looks like. And it is truly, I believe, an evolutionary process, for lack of a better term, or progressive, better. Progressive, you can't even use progressive, though, in a good context anymore. Uh, but it's progressive sanctification, right? That as we get older, it's just like me, you know, one of my evangelism tools was hate the sin, love the sinner. And now I find it rather repugnant because I need to hate my sin more than I'm worried about their sin. But our temptation is to, you know... Oh, you need Jesus because you've got this sin in your life. Well, I need Jesus because i got sin in my life. I just know how to deal with it. Um, what uh, Wisdom in a biblical context, it's literally, it's just like the um, canned answer I have for what is truth. What is truth? Truth is the fundamental reality of how things are, how God sees it. Right. Why is it important to have, especially during trials? It's no coincidence that he followed the trials with wisdom. I think we covered it. It gives us insight as to why. So much of what we see in our modern culture now are suffering avoidance tools. 
I don't want to suffer, so I'm going to voice my suffering onto you and demand that you relieve my suffering. Um, fundamentally, abortion is a suffering avoidance tool. How do they justify it? The mother's not ready to have a child, and if she does have a child, the child will suffer. Abortion, I believe, is the ultimate suffering avoidance tool in our culture. And then I ask the question, it's better to never suffer than it is to have a life and live through suffering? And then the other event, the apologetic I use for that is, the greatest and most inspirational stories that we have are people who have overcome suffering. If we avoided suffering, Helen Keller's story would mean nothing. Booker T. Washington. I mean, name it. Harriet Tubman. All these stories that inspire us are inspired of people who triumphed over their suffering. Right? Johnny Erickson. Johnny Erickson. Or she, uh, gosh. Corey Ten Boom. Corey Ten Boom. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Johnny Erickson. Yeah. yeah. She's the young lady, the author, who's in the wheelchair, right? Yeah, she broke her neck as a 19-year-old. Yeah. Now, I read a quote of hers last week that I look forward to my restored bodies so that on healthy legs I can bend my knees. That was like, whoa. Well, he hasn't, she hasn't stopped suffering either. You know, she's, she's still, she feels pain. Oh, yeah. You know, she, she's had cancer. She's all kinds yeah. of Yeah. She's a, what, she's a C4, right? She's a C4 paraplegic. Yeah. She has, well, just, yeah. Oh, C6 probably then, yeah. 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 She sings. She sings it as well with my soul. Yeah. Makes you cry every time. So, running out of time, but um, I don't want to go there. You guys are solid enough theologically. We don't have to talk about that. But let's take a look at um, godly wisdom, Proverbs 2, 3 through 15. You could probably quote it, John. Looking for us for silver and searching for us for hidden treasure. Yeah. Yeah. Proverbs 2, 3 through 15. Then you'll find the knowledge of God. Yeah. Yes, please. Yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield for those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and, pre and perseveres, preserves the ways of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you, deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things, from those who leave the path of unrighteousness to walk in the ways of darkness. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Right. And remembering, for me, um, even at 59 years old and having walked with the Lord for now 37 years, is discerning the difference between my wisdom and his wisdom. Because sometimes I have a tendency to use scripture to reinforce an already formed opinion rather than allowing scripture to form my opinion. I've gotten much, much better. That's called proof texting. It's very popular. I think it's popular for all of us. The prosperity guys are really good at it. They can take you around to 19 different verses telling me that this whole 45 minutes or 40 minutes that I've spent talking about the wisdom that comes from suffering, and I'd be a heretic to them. They're the ones that we really need to watch out for. There it is right there, though. It's not a good, accept my words, number one, and store up my commands within you. I mean, that's what we can do, like, today, like, right now. Yeah. We can accept his words. We can store up his commands within us, meditate on them, have them be part of our DNA so when we do see things happen in the world, we can see them from God's perspective and not from my flesh. Yeah. And I need that so bad. Oh, man. 
Yeah. So um, in the last year or so, uh, one of the pieces of wisdom that I believe that I've received that um, for far too long is my view of culture. Somehow I have, and I think evangelical Americans have as well, have we taken the view that we sit above culture and we look down on it from high above and we're detached from it. Um, without accepting the reality that not only are we right in the middle of it and interacting in it, we're partly responsible for it. It's real easy to say, look at those people, right? That's super easy, right? But we're every bit as responsible for the formation of culture, both good and bad. Last week's sermon with Ben, right? Put your light on a stand, for far too often, we've just kind of stood back. I'm real, one of the things I'm really excited that's happening in cult, Christian culture right now, guys, there's a huge movement of Christian artists um, that they are reclaiming the arts for the glory of God. Because from about the 1950s on, the church basically abdicated its responsibility for art. There's all kinds of great, devout Christian people doing quote-unquote secular music with storytelling. And unless you were a Christian, you wouldn't know that this was a Christian song, right? And, um, oh man, uh, Makoto Fujimura, I don't know if you've heard of him. He's a brilliant media artist. Um, he's being recognized all over the world for his gifts. And when he's brought up on the stage, Makoto says, I'm a vessel. My most famous painting that you're looking here, it's called Silence. He says, I don't remember a single brushstroke. Get goosebumps. He's brilliant. So we should be encouraged by that it, uh, because I, I have a real passion for the arts. I love it. Um, we're every bit responsible. And I think we have to learn that in order to impact it, we have to, gauge, we have to engage our culture from amidst because we are called to reveal the manifold wisdom of God to rulers and authorities. I have this one, so I'll, I'll read it. It's in Ephesians 3, 8 through 10. And he says, Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of God, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in the God who created all things, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenly places. Making known the manifest wisdom of God to rulers and authorities. And that seems like a really big stone to push up the hill right now, doesn't it? But that doesn't mean that we're going to change the slide in America. But one life at a time, transformed by the gospel for the good of the church as we continue our move into exile. Yeah, and I think uh, for me, one of the challenges is how to engage the, the opposing views and how to, how to oppose the culture that I disagree with. And that's, and, and uh, Paul addresses that writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2. Mm -hmm. He says, but the first thing to do is avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. <laughs> Yep. Now, don't get generated strike. Now, I just preached on this a couple months ago, so it's fresh in my mind. You know, but a servant of the Lord must be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and in humility convince those who are in opposition. You forgot not quarrelsome. What's that? Not quarrelsome. Not quarrelsome, right. Yep. And so that, that right there, are we going to... Are we just going to fight? Because you know, I love it. Walk in the spirit or in the flesh? I love a good debate, man. I mean... I'll be honest with you, uh, one of the things I miss is the Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons coming to my door. Now that I live out in the country, and I guess they don't do it anymore, but I used to stand out there and just listen to them talk and ask them questions, you know, and get into these circular arguments with them about legalism and ask Elder Biff and Elder Skip what part of, you know, 1 Timothy 3 they, they actually adhere to at being 19 years old and being called an elder, just curious, you know. But I do miss that. I miss that. And part of that's probably because of my wickedness and my love to play the trump card. I know that. 
No, I had it. So when we lived on Mayberry, I had a couple, I had two ladies that would come and visit all the time. And then I blew them up and then they would walk right past me. I'd be out mowing the lawn. I'd go, what? You're not worried about my soul? Right. So that wasn't fun. So, or was a little bit too fun. I guess the last thing I want to touch on and then we'll move on. Um, we won't even expo we won't even exposit it, but be doers of the word, just not hearers, right? That's what James says. It's familiar. Um, we can break it down to elementary principles, but it really comes down to it is praise the Lord, we have the Holy Spirit. Amen. Right? And that when He prompts us, we should move. Regardless of how we feel about it and what emotional response it triggers in us that we should press into obedience even if it causes tension. Uh, Justin Anderson again said something. He said, what does it mean to be an evangelist? It means being a human being in public and explaining why and understanding that there will be collisions. Make sure you do not have bumper sticker faith because bumper sticker faith does not hold up to collisions. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Thank you for doing that. That's going to require some and Thank you for engaging. Thank you for listening to my classic Kirk Parnham rant. I have come down a few notches over the 30 years that we've been friends, John. So, God, we thank you for your word and the truth that lies in it. Lord, flowers will fade and opinions will pass, but your word stands forever. Pray, Lord, that you bless us as we go and remind us of the truth of your word as we look to follow your call to engage and impact our culture. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.